You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. We are especially happy today that on Preaching Source, our guest is uh, actually a very popular preacher these days, Brother H.B. Charles, Jr. He's the pastor of Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and he's also the author of two books that will be of special interest to to, uh, pastors. One is entitled On Preaching, and the other is entitled On Pastoring. So, Pastor Charles, welcome to Preaching Source. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be with you. Now, you began pastoring uh, very young, at the age of 17, following your father at Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, What was that experience like? What was it like to start at such a young age to be called of God and also to follow your father? Sure. So I have had no uh, desire whatsoever to do anything in my life besides preach. So I was converted as a boy and very early in my life, there was a call of God that I sensed to preach and it has consumed my entire life. Um, In the providence of God, I started pastoring at the age of 17. I do not recommend that. I have a 17-year-old son, and I don't trust him really to watch the fish he has in his room, (laughs) much less watch over a congregation. Uh, But that is my testimony. And I was really so blown away. My initial response was, really, you all are going to pay me to preach every week? And... I really, by my father's example, really saw the priority of the pulpit, and I, as a young man, already had a love for the Word, and very early on, uh, I just wanted to explain the Word. Uh, Pastor Charles, based on your experience, what advice would you give to younger pastors? My advice to younger pastors is the advice I would give to young men around me just last night in a meeting at our home church, and it would be, I worded it this way, and I've written it in on pastoring, guard the bank. If I may quickly, a friend of mine told me early in my first, my first months of the pastorate I have now about bandits who tried to attack the bank of a local village, but it was guarded too well. So they went out a few miles and set the barns on fire, and everyone ran to get the barns safe, And then they came in and robbed the bank. And he told me, guard the bank. Don't worry about the barns. Rob the bank. That is, keep the main thing the main thing. And I would say that would be my priority to a young pastor, a young preacher. The main thing needs to be guarding the bank. And by that, I mean a commitment to sound doctrine and a commitment to preach and teach the Word of God faithfully and clearly. Hmm. H.B., when did you begin what we would call the practice of expository preaching. When when did that really take hold in your ministry? Sure. So my father was not an expositional preacher. I was groomed under his preaching and his preaching colleagues. They were more textual preachers. My father's preaching hero was Spurgeon, and his style was to take a verse and to kind of turn it like a jewel to pull up the, uh, to highlight the gospel implications of it. I felt early that I would not be able to do that. I, my father was a strong orator uh, of the Gardner C. Taylor uh, type, and I just never felt that that would be the way I would be able to preach. So 
I started picking up books as a teenager on preaching. One of the first books that had a great impact on me was A Practical Guide to Sermon Preparation by Dr. Jerry Vines. And I was introduced to expositional preaching by that book, a book by Al Faisal as well on preaching. And I would say the first preacher in my context that I heard do it was the late Dr. E.K. Bailey uh, of the Concord Church in Dallas. And then uh, for some years, I would sit in the back of the Grace Community Church in Los Angeles and hear John MacArthur do it. I would preach on Sunday mornings and go visit there. And they, by their example, those men were two major examples of what um, is, I think, rightly called text-driven preaching, letting the Word of God in a particular text, in context, drive the point of the message. Mm. In your book on preaching, you've got this wonderful line. I, I just love this, but you say that there are three kinds of preachers, the ones you can listen to, the ones you can't listen to, and the ones you must listen to. Uh, what are the qualities of a must-listen-to preacher? Sure. And by that statement, that is my expression of the importance of being a compelling preacher, a compelling preacher. And I think there are three elements to that. Two of the elements represent the preacher's responsibility. The third is not something I think you should strategize for. I think it should be a byproduct of the two. But the three are faithfulness, clarity, and passion. I think faithful preaching, compelling preaching, is faithful to the text, clear in its communication. And I think if you do that, prayed up, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, there will be authentic passion about the preaching of that clear and faithful message. That is not about volume or style as much as it is preaching that is not one who stands there as a paid representative, but one who preaches like a satisfied customer. Hmm. You've mentioned before that great preachers expose themselves to great preaching, and you've already mentioned a few of your mentors. Uh, uh, what are, who are some of the other preachers that you've listened to that have been your exposure to great preaching? Sure. So I, to this day, listen, I think, to uh, more preaching than most people in the pew who sit there every week. And it is still a part of my developmental process to listen to other preachers and to listen to, I think it's bad if a preacher doesn't listen to other preachers. I think it's also bad if you only listen to another preacher. I think it is best that you're listening to preachers of different styles and cultures and even genres, those who would go about it, maybe not the style that I would, but um, I think those are all models you can learn from in one way or the other. Um, I mentioned two. Um, I, over the years, have listened to Maurice Watson. I've listened to Dr. Jerry Vines. I listened to, um, right down the street from me, Mac Brunson uh, is a faithful preacher. And on and on and on, uh, I am usually listening to preachers related to whatever text I'm preaching on. Mm. Now, your book on preaching has a follow-up book on pastoring. How, how does your preaching ministry flow out of your pastoral ministry? Sure. In my mind, the two are 
inextricably linked. I am favorite of the Lord to preach a lot of places these days, but whatever effectiveness I have there is a, is a overflow of my pastoral preaching. My priority uh, is the family I am called of God to feed each week. And to some degree, I'm grateful that others may benefit from it. But I think what has made me over the years take my preaching more seriously is a greater sense of the pastoral stewardship I have to shepherd the flock under my care in sound doctrine and in the gospel of of Jesus Christ. I think that the pastor's task, Acts 6 and 4, is prayer and the ministry of the word. And... um, last year someone, I think being a smart aleck, asked me which was more important, prayer or the ministry of the word. And I answered, if you are 30,000 feet in the sky, you tell me which is more important, the left wing or the right wing, you know. Um, both prayer and the ministry of the word are our pastoral priorities, and I view expositional preaching as a key expression of that. What is your sermon pri- preparation process? How do you go about pulling together a sermon each week? Sure. I would say... Um, the first thing I would say is I am trying to study devotionally. I want to be, as an early preaching mentor told me, I want my preaching to be more um, like a root rather than a pipe. Water goes through a pipe with no benefit to the pipe. Water goes through a root and strengthens the root. I, um, so then I'm, I'm trying to consciously, intentionally study devotionally and then the other thing in the, very, in the practical side is I would say I'm trying to study slowly. Um, I want to study slowly. I want a process that slows me down because the more slowly I am going, the more I, I am concentrating and the more it gets the scripture into my system. So after prayer, I'm reading, reading, rereading the text. I'm reading from multiple translations. I'm doing the inductive study Bible method, and I'm starting with observations of the text where I'm just um, thinking myself empty. Every observation I see about the text, I'm getting into word studies, cross-references, context, background. I do. I, I do believe that a preacher's friends are commentaries. So I, I think it's... Uh, arrogant not to be willing to consider the wisdom of others. Um, And I think uh, that uh, using the commentaries is a way of practicing Proverbs. There's wisdom in many counselors. And I am taking good notes of what I record, not just for later use, which is a benefit, but also it's, it's, it's it's another way to slow me down. It's getting the text and the message in my system, and after I have finished my research, I'm going to craft a, a sermon skeleton, what I call it, the, the, the bare skeleton of the message. And then I, my goal each week is to write a complete sermon manuscript around that skeleton. And I'm trying again to write it slowly and carefully so that my goal each week is to, at the end of that process, get to the pulpit with nothing but my Bible. Do you have a special place where you do this preparation and writing? So I am 
uh, a an, an office pastor, and I prefer to be in my study first thing in the morning. I guess I am old school in that regard. I think, you know, the pastor should spend his mornings with God, his afternoons with the people, and his evenings with his family. So I'm, if I can guard my mornings through the week for study um, and in, in my office where my library is, that's beneficial to me. I would say many times my schedule uh, kind of throws my agenda uh, out the window. So I also learn to study. I've learning I've had to learn to sanctify wherever I am <laughs> as a as a prayer closet to meet with God. So sometimes I am uh, at home studying. Sometimes I am in the corner booth of a restaurant with eggs uh, and books, sometimes on a plane. Uh, so I but I prefer uh, mornings in my study. That would be my ideal place. Uh, one of the titles of a chapter in your book on preaching is Why I Pray Before I Preach. Uh, talk to us about the relationship between prayer and preaching. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I believe that the, the pastoral assignment are tools. The fuel of ministry is found in prayer and the ministry of the Word, Acts 6 and 4. And I think that... Prayer needs to saturate the entire process of study. I pray that chapter is about when I stand to preach and begin the message. I begin the message with prayer for my sake and for the congregation's sake. For my sake to remind me of my utter dependence upon God to speak faithfully his word. And then I pray for the, for the congregation's sake, publicly, pastorally for the congregation's sake, because uh, they need to be dependent upon God as well to hear clearly. There's a sense in which hearing God's word is a miracle. Jesus says, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can have ears and not hear unless God... Um, gives you understanding of his word or to kind of shift the picture there. If God doesn't open your eyes to behold wondrous things from the word, you'll miss them even though they're right there. So I, I pray so that on the part of pulpit and pew, we approach the preaching moment with a sense of dependence upon God's help. Pastor Charles, you, you your church just made a remarkable bit of history in, in uh, the terms of race relationships. In 2015, Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church uh, merged, partnered uh, with Ridgewood Baptist Church after that church had gone through a financial struggle, uh, creating really a remarkable blended congregation. What, what advice would you give to pastors as they seek to uh, unify the body of Christ in the midst of, of racial struggle? Sure. Thank you for that question. And honestly, there's a part of that where I get nervous about this question, and I get it a lot lately, um, because there's a sense in which, as I hear this question, I feel like uh, a fraud. I, I don't have any advice I would, in, the, in the sense that this was not our grand plan. It was God's doing. We were up to something else, and God led us to something we had no idea he was up to. So I, I don't want to talk like one who has this grand plan uh, for reconciliation that we have executed. 
But I am grateful to see and be a part of a church where we have followed God by faith. And the gospel has drawn together these two congregations. And I am grateful to just see the the power of the gospel at work. There are multiple, many things that uh, would pull us apart and keep us separated. And there, there are adjustments and sacrifices both congregations have had to make, but the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ has, has literally been the centering, the center point of the church, where we, we, different programs, different music styles, different traditions, uh, all of those things have been treated as secondary, and we've gathered around the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would say, if anything concerning strategy, on our part, that never would have been possible if leading up to this, we had not been at work to intentionally reach out beyond our comfort zone. When um, I think about this, I think, as I mentioned earlier, five blocks down the street from our church is the First Baptist Church where Mac Brunson serves. And when I got to Jacksonville, he reached out and befriended me. And he would come and preach for us and invite me to preach for him and uh, he would bring his choir down the street and shock my church <laughs> and bring our choir down to shock his church. And we would do outreach things together. And I would say those simple acts of just a friendship built five blocks away was God at work loosening the soil to uproot some things that made it possible later um, for us to make this merger. So that would be my advice is you should take small steps of faith that will hopefully enable you to later take large leaps of faith. But it may be just beginning by reaching beyond your comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. Mm. Uh, Pastor Charles, you you have a a remarkable cross-generational, cross-demographic appeal. Uh, You're a fairly young pastor still, and yet I know a lot of seasoned people pastors who just love to hear you preach. Uh, you're African-American. There are uh, Asians and white people and uh, just the appeal. Uh, you connect with a very culturally broad audience. Do, do you attribute that to the fact that you're just, you're just going after the text? I mean, you ju- you're one of those preachers that uh, as soon as you open your mouth, it's clear that your heart, your mind, your soul has been captivated by that text. And those of us who are listening to you just find it irresistible. Would, do you think that's where the real power of your appeal comes? Is it coming from that dedication to the text? Yeah, I take my, my preaching of the Word very seriously. I listen to a lot of other preachers, and I just feel like I have such a long way to go. They are a lot better communicators uh, than I am. And um, I would say, however, you know, um, I, one, one, one pastor I heard being interviewed was commended for being, his, being a courageous preacher, and he rejected the compliment and said he wasn't a courageous preacher. And um, they said, well, you, you have to be courageous to say the things that you say. And he says, no, you don't have to be courageous to be a faithful preacher, but if you're going to be a coward, at least hide in the text. <laughs> And I feel like 
I am a coward in the pulpit, and my solution to that is to hide in the text. But I, I believe the fruit of that is we are trying to give people something else that we think will suit their taste. But people want the word, and they don't know it. And when they hear it, and when you are opening up the word of God, there are preachers that feel like expositional preaching doesn't work and that you have to do something else to get people's attention. And wherever I am, they may not know what expositional preaching is or text-driven preaching is or any of that, but when you are opening up Scripture and helping them understand God's Word and see God's truth, I see consistently that people fall in love with that when they are able to understand the Word. And my goal is to just as clearly as I can be a mouthpiece for the text. Our guest on Preaching Source today has been H.B. Charles, Jr., pastor of Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And let me say to our listeners that if you have never heard H.B. Charles, Jr. preach, you haven't lived in the first quarter of the 21st century <laughs> until you have heard this man. So seek out the opportunity, whether you get an audio, video, or go hear him live is the best way to take him in. But this is a man of God with the anointing of God that you need to hear preach. H.B., thank you so much for being with us today on Preaching Source. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy.